Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter one. I'm gonna start reading from verse 12 and we'll read the remainder of this great chapter. Acts chapter one. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a caldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, which is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this passage on prayer and dependence on you and interdependence on one another and unity and kindness, it sounds like a foreign language in our culture today. And so I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see this, to live this, to be this kind of church in such a divisive age. We need you, Lord. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to unite us in Christ. And so we plead earnestly in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's an old joke that's sad but true. You may have heard it. A man is stranded on an uninhabited island and a ship passes by and they come out to save the man and they row out with their boats and when they get there, he says, well, let me give you a tour of the islands. We've got, there's three grass huts sitting there. And he says, this one is my house and this is the one where I go to church. And they said, what about the third hut? And he said, oh, I don't don't talk about that. That's where I used to go to church. Okay, we divide, right? We leave church. We do one thing and then we do another and we leave for good reasons, we leave for bad reasons, we leave for big reasons, we leave for small reasons, but it seems to be our lot, even as believers, to split and to divide. Churches split, denominations split, friendships split, sometimes over very sad and silly things. 
I'm sure each of us could tell war stories of a split we've lived through or a friend that we've been near who has lived through a church split and we could even one-up each other on just how heated the thing became for how small the issue actually was. We've seen it. Budget, building, carpet color, you name it, it has been done. But of course, when we do that, we look exactly like our neighbors. We look exactly like the world who even now is at each other's throats in what has to be one of the most divisive climates that many of us have ever seen in our lifetime. So when this huge decision hits this baby church in her first 10 days of existence, it's almost like the writing is on the wall. It's almost like we know exactly what is going to happen. We expect the worst. One group is going to get what they want. The other group won't. And boom, it splits. And the fact that the church doesn't split, the fact that they make this decision and actually never speak of it again, should make every one of us sit up and take notice and say something special is here. What is at work in this body? Well, I want to get our arms around the story and then we'll talk about the dilemma and how it was solved. But um, we know that there are 50 days between uh, Easter and Pentecost. So when Jesus rose from the dead, when the Holy Spirit's going to descend. And we spent last week talking about the first 40 days where Jesus stayed with his disciples and he taught them, he proved his resurrection, he talked about the kingdom. And then he left them alone for 10 days and you almost feel like that was on purpose for this very reason because then his Holy Spirit is going to fall on the church in Acts chapter two at Pentecost. So after Jesus ascends on the mount, the disciples watch him go. Then they walk a mile or two back to Jerusalem and they show up back in the upper room where they had just been with Jesus. And we're told that there are 120 persons there all gathered together. So this is not just the apostles. This is a large group that has been following Jesus. But depending on if you're an optimist or a pessimist and you Notice that there's 120 people with Jesus. Some people see that glass half empty and some see it half full. Because the half empty folks are looking at this crowd and thinking there's only 120 people left after the ministry of Jesus? I mean, where are the thousands upon thousands who heard truth from Jesus's lips? who saw demons exercised, who saw the sick healed, the dead raised, who had their stomachs filled with loaves and fish. Did they encounter the Son of God in the flesh and simply go home to their normal lives? Jesus spent three years almost daily preaching, attended by miracles, And he's got 120 measly souls to show for it. It gives us a window into the nature of the work that is at hand. That's depressing. That's the the glass is half empty. But actually, if you look a little more closely, there are some beautiful things about the crowd that's gathered here. And the glass is really half full. In verse 13, we learn that the 11 survive. They're named by name. It's a little confusing because there's two Judases, but the good one is left. 
Jesus swore that he would keep his disciples, that besides Judas, he would hold them in his hands and no one could snatch them from him, that Satan would ask to sift them like wheat and he would deny Satan the privilege to do so. He swore he would keep these 11 and true to his word, against all odds, he kept the 11 disciples and they're still here. They're still believing, they're still trusting. What's even more crazy, verse 14, is that Mary, his mother, and his brothers are here. That's crazy because I think family are the hardest people in the world to share the gospel with. I mean, I would rather witness to anybody but family. That's hard. And Jesus' family gave him a hard time. A prophet has no honor in his hometown or in his home. His brothers mocked and ridiculed him. They didn't believe him. And lo and behold, God has humbled them and here they are in faith with his mom worshiping Jesus. That's incredible. But I wanna pay particular attention to what you might've missed in verse 14 that Luke says that the women are here. Quote, the women, end quote. Luke is not by saying the women referencing like this indiscriminate flock of women that gathered. When he says the women, he refers to this powerhouse group of women introduced to us in Luke chapter eight. You've got this group of women who have been converted in radical ways. They've either had a demon exercise from them or they've been healed. They are now converted. They are women of power and means and they band together to financially support, to encourage and to motivate this missionary work. Humanly speaking, you don't have these women and you don't have the apostles' itinerant ministry for the last three years that was dependent on this group of women. And I don't mean because they were sweet, loving, supporting, stay-at-home wives that cooked three square meals so that their husbands could go out and do real ministry work. I mean because these women stuck their necks on the line to push kingdom pronouncement into every corner of Israel. You don't have these women and you don't have a Galilee-wide evangelistic effort. That was these women that helped do that thing. And because those women had that role in Jesus's life and ministry, he chooses to honor them, this group, in a very, very special way. When he rises from the dead, they are the first to see the resurrection. Luke says they're the first there. Luke says they go back to the disciples and tell them it happened. Luke says the disciples have trouble believing that. They are honored with the first view of the resurrection, which is crazy because we know in first century Roman society, a woman's testimony was not valid in court. Why would you let a woman see something and testify to something if she couldn't even show up in court and her testimony be valid? And it's as if God is saying, I care nothing for your man-made chauvinist court system. I will honor who I will honor. And these women have been with me and supported me and I honor them with this view. And actually... Luke is gonna continue that theme from his gospel into the book of Acts when he points out pillars of the faith. Women like Tabitha and Lydia and Priscilla 
who stood as stalwart examples of the church, who made the church possible, humanly speaking, in very hard to reach areas. And that history goes down through the ages. Godly, God-fearing, gospel-breathing, spirit-filled women in church history and in our church body today who because of their efforts, we see the gospel expand in ways it would not have unless the women were here. So everybody chill out and take a deep breath. The women are here, okay? They're in the upper room. We're gonna be okay. They're here. So that's the group. Here's the dilemma. It's tricky. Jesus appointed 12 apostles, not 13, not 16, not eight. He chose 12 apostles because they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And by appointing them, Jesus is showing, I am remaking a new Israel. That's why it's 12 to show you this is the new Israel of faith. And so they represent the 12 tribes. And Jesus says they will sit on 12 thrones in judgment. That makes this open slot the most coveted position in all Christendom. I mean, forget the pastorate, and forget the Pope, these 12 sit closest to Jesus. If there is any position you want, it is one of these 12 slots. In verses 21 and 22, they lay out the qualifications. They say it's as simple as this. Whoever this person is gonna be, they have to have been with us from Jesus's baptism with John the Baptist all the way through his ministry, and particularly, they must have seen and can testify to Jesus' resurrection. That's the apostle's job, to say, I've literally seen him dead and now alive. You have to have seen that. And I actually don't know how many people fit that description. Sometimes we just think it's the 12, but there are other people who were there that entire time who saw all of those things. And the group is able to say, there's at least two that are our favorites, okay? We've got Joseph and we've got Matthias. They both fit the description. We think they would be great at this job. They put those two men forward and our hearts kind of stop within us because we know that how this is gonna go, right? We know how this is gonna go when there's two valid options in front of us because there's gonna be the Matthias camp and there's gonna be the Joseph camp. And there are people in this 120 that like the way Matthias does things. And there are people in this 120 that can't stand the way Matthias does things. And there are people here in this group who will never ever forget the day that Joseph sent them a birthday card when they were feeling low And there's other people in the room to whom Joseph has never once looked at them or said a kind word. And in our minds, we just watch the 120 fall out into these two camps and begin to whisper to one another. We get coffee this week and someone says, what about this Matthias guy? And the other person says, I heard. I heard, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that Matthias isn't a Calvinist. It's like, what? 
Are you kidding me? Of course he's a Calvinist. He quotes Calvin all the time. No, that's, that's what I heard. And we all know from experience that once you stick your flag in a position, your ego follows, and it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a human being to be humbled to publicly change their mind on a position. But amazingly, I mean miraculously, I mean supernaturally, that's not what happens here. We're not renting a second upper room. We're not starting second Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem. The group stays together. How's that possible? How does that happen? Well, I think the earliest church shows this beautiful dual dependency. They are dependent on God and they are interdependent on each other. Dependent on God, interdependent on each other. Look at their dependency on God. I spent half my sermon last week bashing the disciples for how unready they will be for the Great Commission. I hope they don't remember that at the pearly gates when I see them. But actually, I think they'd agree with me. I think they would agree, and I would agree with them. We are not ready for the Great Commission. And so I love what their first act is when they get back to the upper room in verse 14. It tells us their first order of business is to devote themselves in prayer. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, they just throw themselves on God in dependency to, the, to him. And this is before any decision has to be made. This isn't like just that pre-meeting warm-up prayer that you just kind of do to baptize what you're gonna do in, in God's name and then you go on to the real business of the church. This is like passionate, earnest, devoted prayer together before there's anything to decide on. And since the church and its leadership is bathed in prayer, When the fire comes and the tension comes, they're already on their knees. That's not a new thing. That's not a knee-jerk reaction. It's just who they are, absolutely dependent on God. They go to scripture, verses 15 to 20. They're looking in God's word for answers. They pray again. They've done all this praying. They continue to pray in verse 24. And number three, they cast lots to seek God's decision. Now, just as a total aside, lots are described to us in the Old Testament. And it was used by God in certain situations that his people, typically his priests, could cast lots so that a decision could be clear to the people as coming from God. This is the only time in the New Testament we see this being done. And after it's done here, it's never done again by believers once the Holy Spirit comes. So see it, maybe not as normative for us, but as yet another sign, prayer, word, and in this case, lots, the people are wholly dependent on God to show them what he would have them do. But not only are they dependent on God, they're interdependent on each other. And by that, I mean their unity was a foregone conclusion in their mind. It's not like they're together just waiting to be miffed by another person so that they can take their ball and go home. This church worked under the assumption that splitting was not an option. Imagine that. I mean, they saw the Great Commission. 
They realize they have 120 persons. They look out over a lost world, millions of souls that do not know the precious Easter news that Jesus has written, and they think to themselves, it would be crazy to divide our tiny little army in the face of this. John Calvin said something similar. And Matthias would have known that because he was a Calvinist. But John Calvin talked to his squabbling church that was at each other's throats. And he said to them, y'all make war with each other as if you are at peace with the world. You are fighting with each other, bickering with each other, smacking each other around as if you even had that luxury as if there is not a waiting world that does not have this gospel, as if there is not a kingdom of God pressing in, as if this will not cost us every ounce of energy, blood, sweat, and tears to see the glory of God cover the earth like the waters, the sea. You guys have extra time to pit yourselves against one another. That's crazy. And I think the earliest church saw that in a way that maybe we lose sight of that. This commission is so great. The glory of God is so precious. What could be bigger? What could be more important in this moment? All of this makes the little verse that happens at the beginning of the next chapter my favorite Bible verse of the week. Chapter two, verse one, after this is done, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Everybody was together in one place. And I gotta ask, even Joseph? Did he come? He was so close to a throne seat in heaven. Did he come? What about Joseph's followers who so badly wanted Joseph in that spot? Or what about those who said things in the debate that couldn't be unsaid? Or what about those who just didn't want to sit next to that smug little Matthias group who got exactly what they wanted, who showed up in that room and said, man, I'm just so glad we chose Matthias. He's just ministered to my soul this week. And you want to say, shut up. Let me do this. <laughs> they are all together in one place. Dependent on God, interdependent on each other as the family of God. Church family, the hour is upon us in which we will stand together in hopeful dependence upon God and interdependence upon each other as the true family of God, or we will fall fragmented in bitter dissension with one another. Our passage feels like it comes from this alien universe and the stuff that's celebrated here, it is not celebrated in the world today. You won't find friends in the world who see this and marvel at this and think that this is actually a good thing. Who celebrates unity? Who's quick to share stories that bind us together? 
When's the last time we heard someone from an opposing viewpoint, an opposing political party say to us, wow, that's a great point. I never thought about it that way. I've changed my mind. Who among us is willing to not insist on our own way? Who is still kind when they don't? Who doesn't gloat when they do? This is otherworldly. And I tell you, since the world doesn't celebrate this and doesn't know the beauty of this, they are watching very closely if there is anything different about us than them. To read brothers and sisters come to a monumental decision like this, a church-splitting decision, pray, decide, move forward together, it is supernatural. It smells of the aroma of Christ, the risen, ascended Christ himself who makes one holy, universal, apostolic church. It looks like a people who are poised for a fresh inbreaking of the Holy Spirit. It feels heavenly because it is. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that in these coming days and weeks, in an election year, in a a culture that is at each other's throats, in a pandemic, in big decisions to be made as households and as a church and as families, that you would continue to grow us as a people who are wholly dependent on you and interdependent on each other. Unify us. Let our love for one another, our care for one another, the guardedness of our words about one another be as worship unto you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.